Happy Father's Day, by the way. We, uh, we neglected to do that, but uh, how many fathers are there in the house? We got some fathers? Awesome. Can we get a round of applause for our fathers? Um, great. Happy Father's Day. I am going to go, I didn't, many of you know my father. He's the founding pastor of this uh, very church. Um, and if you know him well, you know he has uh, the palate of a third grader and the movie uh, sort of the movie bias of the same age range. So what we're doing tonight is going to see The Incredible Sue followed by Hi-Ho Cheeseburger. I'm so proud to be his son. So uh, it's going to be fun. Um, let me pray for us uh, just as we start. We're going to be talking about um, implicit bias, which is going to be really fun. Um, and, uh, and we're going to end with a story about a raccoon, which if you guys followed the, uh, the news this week, we're, gonna, we're in for a fun one. This is, we're due for a silly one. We talked about like a really heavy subject last week. We're just going to laugh a lot this morning, hopefully, if I'm even remotely funny. Um, let's not put the bar too high. But let me, uh, let me pray for us, uh, and then we'll get started. God, uh, I'm, I'm really thankful for this space. Thank you for uh, all the fathers that we have uh, in the room, all the fathers that we have in our lives. And, uh, Lord, I just, I just want to point out, uh, as we're going to be talking about a lot this morning, that there are always um, two sides uh, to the story. There are always more than two sides to the story. In fact, there are as many sides to the story as there are characters in a story. And uh, for some of us, these Father's Day, these Mother's Day, these, um, these holidays can bring up uh, unwanted pain, reminders, hurt. Uh, so we hold both this morning, Lord, the joy of fatherhood and also just the, uh, the sorrow. Uh, may we be a community that can embrace both and lift each other up. Amen. So, um, speaking of movies, uh, I've talked about my love of movies a whole lot. Um, it's one of my favorite things to do because it's an absolute escape. Uh, but here's the reason I think we love movies. Because when we go to movies or plays or read a book or whatever it is, we're able to kind of like place ourselves in the shoes of a hero, right? Like whatever that hero is, we could be going to space, we could be, uh, we could be surviving a ship, like wreck, all that kind of stuff. We, but we place ourselves within the story of the hero. And I think we carry this narrative outside of just entertainment when we go, when we're driving, when we're going to our, our jobs. We're kind of in this blissful, especially as Americans, I don't think it's true all over the world, but us particularly, we have this view that this is our movie, we're the star of the show, and that everyone else is just a supporting act. And if you don't believe me, if you've ever sit in traffic, you'll prove yourself completely wrong in this instance. You're not mad in traffic if someone like scoots in front of you, cuts in front of you, takes your spot because they took your spot. You're, get, you're getting mad, if we're really honest, on a base level because we believe that we were more important than that person and how dare they think that they can get in front of us, right? That's the most important part. We're the star of the show and someone else comes along and when they go, they're an instantly an enemy. It's amazing how angry we can get in our little glass tubes because we believe no one is listening. So like someone cuts in front of you and all of a sudden this righteous anger rowls up in you and you must act and so you use words and expletives we can't use in this room. Uh, but you're doing that because you believe that you are the star of the show and that how dare you get in front of me, right? I think we can learn more from one movie star about being the proper star of the show than anyone else. And his name is Clint and not Eastwood, but Howard. It is this gentleman right here. Look that picture, Sean? There he is, Clint Howard. Now, if you guys know who Clint Howard is, Clint Howard has a very famous older brother named Ron Howard. And Clint Howard, his, his face is looking gnarly because of that little bend there, but Clint Howard uh, is included in every one of Ron Howard's films. 
He gives his brother a role in every single one of them. And if you've watched interviews about Ron, it's not just that he's throwing his little brother a bone. Clint Howard is actually one of the great American actors and character actors, and he's almost exclusively a supporting act. Almost every movie you will see Clint in is him supporting his older brother in some sort of way and enriching the story. And I think we should get a whole lot more like Clint and a whole less lot more like Ron. Uh, Clint's first role defined his entire life. So his brother Ron got his big start on The Andy Griffith Show, and uh, Clint was also on The Andy Griffith Show, and he looked like this. Go to the next slide. There he is, <laughs> tiny little Clint. Now Clint had a recurring role just like Andy did, but Clint had no lines. This is so interesting. Clint's whole role was he was a recurring character, he was a recurring little boy who always had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and no lines. And so he would always be in the shot, and in every frame that he was in, not only did he just have the peanut butter and jelly sandwich and no lines, but he was constantly trying to share the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Can you believe that? This man is amazing. I want to see more of the world through the eyes of this kind of a character. Someone that is constantly looking at you going like, take this. I want to support you. I want to be in your life. Because if we're honest, we spend a whole lot more time, a whole lot more of our joyous time, we're actually giving ourselves away and supporting. When we go and we help a friend who's in need, we're not playing the hero, they're the hero. We're playing a support, right? When, we, when people need help and we offer that help, what's that called? It's called support. And the role of the Christian, the role of the Jesus follower is actually always to be in the supportive role. We have stories in the Bible of people constantly just handing away privilege and power and saying, not for me, but for the greater good. As we are not the story, but we are a part of the story. There's no greater example of this than a guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist is this wild character, and we talked about the book of Mark last week, but uh, he starts out the book of Mark by proclaiming that a stronger one is coming. And there's even a verse in there, because John the Baptist has this huge following, like enormous. Like there's all these people going out to the river to be baptized. He has this movement going. And if you know like two movements that are kind of on the same track, the general rule is that they're going to rub up against each other. So Jesus' movement and John's movement, they're going to rub up against each other, and people are going to begin to go, okay, which one is actually the true leader? Right? Which one should I be following? Is he right or is he right? right? We've got two different options. And the general narrative that we know is that one has to win. You have to win to beat the other side. But John does something remarkable where he completely takes himself out of the picture and he says, I need to become less so that he can become more. It's a grand biblical tradition of giving away power and saying, no, the best thing I can do in this story is support the larger story that's going on. Because we're not the story, just as an individual, but we're part of this grand tradition and this huge, huge story. And like I said, there are as many ways to view a story as there are characters in it. Right now, we all come together on Sunday mornings and, and in small groups and all that kind of stuff, and we are a collective force in this room right now, but all of you are going to go out and lead your own lives, and all of that it's going to be focused on your story. But when we come together in moments like this, we actually combine all those stories to recognize that we're moving towards a grander story, and that's the story of God. Um, let's, let's take a look at scripture and, and see just how many examples there are 
of story. This comes out, this is our lectionary text uh, for the morning. So we're in the middle of a series called Broken Colors and we're going out of the lectionary. So we're pulling uh, verses out of the Old Testament, New Testament, um, and this was our just scheduled verse. And then so my job for the week is to always find these verses and then find something that's going on in the news cycle. Um, this week it happened to be a raccoon. I can't wait to get that. I'm just going to keep planting that. Um, <laughs> Uh, but to find a way that these link up and to support it. So this is, uh, this is out of a book called 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel is a really interesting book because uh, there's 1st and 2nd Samuel. So we have a sequel, right, for a good movie lover. Uh, but the 1st Samuel is a story of this prophet named Samuel who elects the first king of this nation called Israel. Forever, they've been going and existing as 12 different tribes that had no leader besides God. And they would kind of look to the prophets to, like, prod them in the right direction. But eventually it got to the point where they were looking around at the other nations around, specifically the ones that were trying to beat them down, and they're like, okay, they have centralized leadership. We need centralized leadership. And so against the will of Samuel, they get this man named Saul. So begrudgingly, Samuel goes and he anoints this man named Saul. And here's the deal. Saul is an awful king. (laughs) But at first glance, you would look at him and you would say, oh, that's exactly who the king should be. Saul would look like the perfect politician, just chiseled, perfect history, great like, like, like sounding voice, great hair, all this kind of stuff. He's this tall, beautiful man, and when, when Samuel comes, he goes, oh yes, surely this is the one who's supposed to lead. It turns out that was not true. Samuel ends up being, or Saul ends up being a really, really bad king because he forgets to follow God. So he forgets the whole narrative of his people and decides, no, I've been named king, so it's all on me now, and I can forget about being led by this other deity. I'm supposed to be the one that leads the charge. And eventually, God, God comes to Samuel and he says, hey, Saul no longer can be king. He no longer has my blessing. He's gone off the rails. We need to anoint a new king. And so this is where we pick up the story here at 1 Samuel uh, verse 15, or I'm sorry, chapter 15. Uh, we've come to the point where Samuel has been called to this guy named Jesse's house, and Jesse has about eight sons, and all of those eight sons he's going to see, and he's going to pick which one should be anointed king. He's going to listen to God do that. And this verse says, but the Lord said to Samuel, as he's looking at all of the sons, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So basically what happens is Samuel goes to the first son, and he goes, surely this is the guy. He's chiseled, he's awesome, he's tall, he's a great, looks like a great leader. And, and God goes, no, 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 that's not it. And then the second son, no, 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 that's not it. Then the third son, no, 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 that's not it. And this goes until you get to the seventh son. There's a number seven there. I'm not going to go in that rant. We'll save that for later. Uh, seventh son, and it gets to the end of the road, and he goes, still not it. Do you have any more children? Which is kind of an odd question to ask. Like, <laughs> do you got any more? Like, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a last shot. And uh, Jesse says, I mean, yeah, but it's David, and, and he's the youngest, and he's watching the sheep. Like, he's not even important enough to be here. And Samuel says something very, very interesting. He says, go and get him. We will not sit down until he has returned. Now, you can just pass by that verse, but you have to kind of recognize the uncomfortable situation that presents. David is somewhere way off in a field. He could be a day's journey away. And Samuel goes, well, you got to go get him, and you got to go hurry, because we're not going to sit down until David comes back. So by the time David comes back, you have a bunch of very angry brothers who have been both rejected and standing for presumably a couple hours. So he comes back, and he looks at David, and this overwhelming sense of God's presence comes upon him, and he says, yes, this is the guy. 
anoint him. Just a really interesting sidebar here. David does not become king for many, many years later. He has to sit with the knowledge that he's been anointed by God, but just hold on to that little nugget while Saul is still king, and then David even has to work for Saul. It's this whole strange thing. Imagine being told, hey, you're going to be CEO of this company, and, and they go, okay, cool, and they leave you, and you're a teenager, and then you work within that company for years and years and years. Any other person would begin to get real gripey, Real, like, sort of, like, overly confident and cocky, right? You're going to think, like, oh, well, you know, one day I'll be running this place. But David never exhibits that kind of attitude. He sees the larger story. And really, if we look at the story of David, up until it gets a little messy, we could talk about that one Sunday, but if we look at the story of David, we're looking at someone whose profound trust in God defines who he is. His profound trust. So much trust that he's willing to go fight giants, so much trust that he's willing to pull together 12 tribes of Israel, so much trust that God is leading and that he's not, and that's what he's defined by. But the interesting part is that this whole book follows like the story of David. We have David and Goliath in this, we have his whole rise to power, we have Saul's whole demise, and yet the book is called Samuel. Why is the book called Samuel? Well, again, there are as many stories as there are characters in the story. So Samuel plays a complete support role in this whole thing. He's the one moving things along, but he comes and he disappears, and he's just following God. And then you have uh, David, who is, is anointed, right? And we follow his story, but he's still supporting the greater story. David is never really the hero of the story. He's always following what God is doing. And then you have the most interesting character, I think, in this whole thing. Saul has a son, and his name is Jonathan. And this guy, Jonathan, would have been the rightful heir to the throne. And yet Jonathan, in the arc of this story, chooses to step back and actually embrace David as the leader. And we don't talk about him enough because the, the amount of willpower and like virtuosity you have to have to actually give up a kingdom because you see that there's a larger story that you're a part of, that's amazing. And then we have the antagonist named Saul, who's this king who cannot give up power and begins to literally try and kill David because he sees the writing on the wall, he sees what God is doing, and he just eventually tries to wipe him out. So we have all of these different narratives inside a single story. And from Samuel's perspective, the story looks one way. From David's perspective, the story looks another way. From Jonathan's perspective, the story looks another way. And the, the question is, whose story is the right story? And I would posit that the answer to that question is that all of them are the answer. All of them are the right way. It's just who we choose to look through their eyes, who we choose to place ourselves in their shoes, who we choose to do that. And we should always be paying attention to our privilege when we read scripture. And as we read and we place ourselves in the role of the hero, oftentimes we're really not the hero. We might be on the direct other side, and we have to do a better job of recognizing that. I think it, it all comes down, if we boil it all down, it comes down to this key question. What do we think God looks like? And this is where we'll get to our news article this morning. Um, a UNC study, so the University Chapel Hill, uh, did a study this week. Um, can we put that picture up there, Sean, of the two faces? Beautiful. You might, you might have seen this. Um, they interviewed 511 Christian Americans, 
uh, and showed them side by side 300 different pictures of varying difference and asked them to choose the picture each time 300 times over of which one looks more like God to them. And so what they got is here we have the rejection, and then here we have what looks like God. Now, it's really hard to see this because each one of these squares is one of the pictures that they would throw down, so they composited this face. But I actually did a Google image search to see who he would look the most like, and we got this. Elon Musk. Boom. <laughs> so God looks like Elon Musk. God also looks like a white guy. What's really interesting is when they interviewed these people, all 511 of them showed a bias immediately when they were shown a picture. So we put a picture, and it turns out that each one that was thrown down, they would choose the one that looked the most like them. So if you are an older, attractive white male, God looks older and attractive and white. If you are a person of color, God looks like a person of color. If you don't have hair, like myself, you look at a bald God, right? Like, so there's, you pick, based upon your own bias, what you think God looks like. And what's scary in this, folks, is that that man looks like he could be, I don't know, named Chad and live in Culver City and own a acoustic guitar. Like, he's, he's not what God really looks like. Can we go back to the other picture? I think we can learn more about the other side of this picture. This is the unpicked face of God. And I think this is tremendously profound compared to what we choose. What I want to argue is that I think God looks a whole lot more like this. And pay attention to this. It's a little darker. It's a little more feminine looking, right? God is in the unchosen pictures. He's in the unpicked. He's in the unnamed. He's in those who are the least of these. But the danger is we choose a God that looks exactly like us. And when we go down that rabbit hole, here's what happens. As soon as we start choosing a God that looks just like us, then God begins to fit in our party lines. God begins to fit our trajectory. If he looks like us, then obviously he's got to believe the exact same things we do. Right? This is a really profound one to take away and to pray on and to think about during this week. We don't have time to get into it. But you really do become the God that you worship. You become the image of the God that you worship. The question I have for us this morning is what do we think God looks like? Does he look like Elon Musk? Or does he look like the unpicked faces of God? Does he look like someone who might be considered the least of these? And one that might not align with our party views or our political spectrum. We always have to remember that we are made in the image of God and not the other way around. Right? God is not made in the image of us. We are made in the image of of him. And this comes up beautifully in the story of Joshua. So Joshua is this guy, he's got a great name, and he, uh, he is the successor to Moses. So Moses is this great leader that takes all of his people out of Egypt and into a free land for the first time. These people who have been slaves for years and years and years, for generations, have just been freed. And it takes like about 40 years, because they, they kind of do some bummer moves, and God says, you're not ready to enter the promised land yet until we get to the next generation and this leader named Joshua. And Joshua is just about to attack this city named Jericho. Now, a quick little history lesson. Jericho is one of the oldest cities in the entire world. Some believe it could be the oldest city in the whole world, and Jericho's history is littered with both being a city and a military base. 
So it was either a city at one point or a military base. We don't know which one it was when Joshua goes to attack Jericho. All we know is that the walls are high enough and it's intimidating enough that God decides to get creative because he basically tells them there's no way you're going to beat them in any kind of military way. The walls are too big. The people are just too strong. So Joshua rallies his army, and he, he goes to the this, this city of Jericho, and as he's on the way, he encounters this. It says, now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of them with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to them and, and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? And this is the greatest reply that a divine being has ever said in scripture. He says, neither. <laughs> which is not what you want to hear when you're about to go attack a military superpower, right? You see an angel with a sword, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, we got this, and then you arrive, and you're like, all right, buddy, are you with us? And he's like, no, no, I'm not. I'm just, I'm just standing here, um, which is really an interesting thing to think about when we think about God. Neither. God is not for us nor against us. But what he says to Joshua is that you can actually be with me. I'm not going to Take your side or this side, but you can be on my side. And if you can be on my side, then you're going to accomplish things. Jesus does the same thing, and it infuriates people all throughout the Gospels. If you read the Gospels, you'll find Jesus eating and drinking a ton, just a lot. Most of his conversations happen around tables. In fact, I've toyed with the idea of having an entire sermon series where we just go through those table talks and then we eat afterwards because I think, you know, any excuse for free food. But anyway, maybe, maybe in the fall. Um, he's eating and drinking a lot and he's having conversations with people and he's asking a ton and a ton of questions. But here's the thing that would infuriate everyone. Who you sat with, and we've gone into this before in this space, so I won't go too deep into it, but who you sat with, just the same as who you sat with in your high school cafeteria, defined who you were. Who you took meals with, who you sat at table with, would literally define who you were with. And Jesus kept on infuriating both sides because he would go and he would eat with the sinners, right? The people that, like, you shouldn't be at that table because those people are, are dirty. And, and, and why would you eat with the tax collectors and the, and the sex workers and all that kind of stuff? Why would you do that? Any, any good prophet would never do that. And then he would do that, and then all of those people who were leaning left and were all for liberation and everything would go like, rah, rah, thank you, Jesus, you're the man, you just ate with them. And then he would pick up, and he would go from that table, and he would go and he would sit with the Pharisees. And he didn't go to sit with the Pharisees to pick fights. He went to sit to have conversations and to be at table with them, too. And so then you have the people that were just rah rah and Jesus and saying, yeah, he's on our side, going like, oh, shoot, why is he over there? And then you have the conservatives going like, I don't, what, I don't know what to do with him. He's over there, and now he's going to come with us. I'm not sure we, what side he's playing. And the answer is, he's not on either side. And this is very, 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 very important for us to get as Western Christians, especially in this country right now. Jesus' goal is never to create more camps. He doesn't want to be in one camp. He doesn't want to be in the other. In fact, the entire tradition of God, the entire tradition of Jesus is liberating us from those camps. It's to say that it's not all over here and it's not all over here, but I'll sit at both tables. We need each other. And it really doesn't feel like that in this moment in history. Because we're doing the same thing, we're looking across the way, and we're saying, those people over there, those are the evil ones. Not just bad, not just a different opinion, but those are the evil ones, right? We've gone from being able to have conversations about this to like, ooh, no, 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 we don't talk about that. I'll give you an example, I can get you really scared right now. I'm going to do the whole rest of the sermon on Donald Trump. 
Everybody with me? No. You don't want to sit through that, right? Nobody wants to sit through that. Because we get tense. We go, I don't know. I'm on this side. You're on this side. I'm on this side. You're on this side. We begin to think that if we actually talk about the things that matter most, we could lose friends, we could lose family. But here's the thing, guys. We need more discussion. We need more talking. We need to stop looking at people like issues and tables and camps and start looking at people as people who have stories that we can support and that we can learn from and that we actually need. We actually need more than one story. We need all the stories to make up one larger story. We need more arguments for the sake of learning than we do for the sake of winning. When's the last time you entered a debate atmosphere, which could have been your Thanksgiving table, whatever it was, and you looked across the person that thinks directly different than you do, and you thought, oh, I'd love to learn something? We hardly ever do that. Debate and argument has just come to this point where we're just shucking answers at each other, right? Here's what I believe, here's what I believe. And that's never going to change any minds. The best thing we can do as followers of Jesus is act like Jesus. And that involves asking a ton of questions and being a learner and actually going into those conversations not to win, but to learn. Some of you probably saw this video this week. Sean, we had that um, the baseball vid. Boom. If this doesn't make you cry, I don't know what will. So this is a two high school friends, and he's got to either strike him out or this friend will hit, and boom, strikes him out. They advance, he does not. But what does this guy do? That's his friend from elementary school, and instead of gloating and jumping around in the victory dance, we see a much greater victory over here. Can we pause it right there, Sean? Maybe not? Yeah. Sure, just imagine him over there. What I want to say is, again, what do we think God looks like? Do we think God looks like the victory dance? Or do we think God looks like the embrace? Let me just keep this up here for a minute, Sean. The beautiful, beautiful nature of this table right here is that this is what, if, you're, if, you're, if you grew up Catholic or you are Catholic, um, you would call this the Pascal mystery which Pascal comes from a word that comes from the, the idea of Passover, which comes from a word called Passa. I know I'm not nailing that, but that's it, my best shot. Passa, right? Everyone say Passa. Do it with that, yeah, gravitas. It's nice. Uh, Passa can mean a lot of different things, but the most important difference I've seen in the Hebrew translation of Passa is that it can be a word that can be used for both dancing and limping. The idea of Passover, of coming to the table, of this mystery, is that we can approach this table both limping and dancing. That there can be two sides and that both are valid and both are good. Where is God in this? The answer is both. He's in the victory dance and he's in the embrace. God is in everything if we just choose to look for him and follow him and listen. The ancient rabbis used to tell this tale uh, of how the word heaven came together. So the Hebrew word for heaven is shayem, and it's, it's this gorgeous word, and it means you know, unity, and it means peace, and it means shalom, and it's all this gorgeousness. But one of the rabbis pointed out that uh, it looks like a mashup of two different words. The word uh, for fire, I need to read this because I didn't pronounce, uh, is esh, and then esh mim, shayem, right? They're, they're combined together, and esh means fire, 
And then Nim actually means water. And so what the rabbis say is heaven is where fire and water can meet, coexist, and not burn each other up. That heaven is this combination of two different things coming together, two different viewpoints, actually working together to create heaven, to create peace. That's the tradition that we're in. I think we need to be having tons more arguments, debates, conversations, but holding that kind of posture, saying like it's, it's about both fire and water, maybe I'm the fire in this instance and you're the water, but we can come together. And when we do that, that's where heaven begins. That's crazy. When we actually choose to involve ourselves in these uncomfortable conversations and understand that that's where heaven begins. That is crazy. But the only way to do that is not by chucking answers and our dogma at someone else. Again, it's about questions, it's about listening. Most of the debates we enter in are like snowball fights when they should be a game of catch. Right? They're just like clobber, 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 when they should be like, here you go, here you go, here you go. Back and forth, talking with each other, talking it out, being fire and water. Jesus did this a lot. Jesus asks uh, 307 questions throughout the Gospels, 307. And get this, he, he's asked 183 questions, and he replies to those questions most of the time. So what you get is more conversation. What do you think? Jesus would ask questions like, who do you say that I am? Or what are you looking for? Or what can I do for you? These are all questions that Jesus would ask. And if you ask Jesus a direct question, expecting a direct answer, you'd usually be pretty bummed out because he would just keep asking you questions. 307 questions. That's almost double the amount of questions that he was asked. And this is even more fascinating. There are two published studies that, that posit the idea that Jesus actually only directly answers three questions. Three out of 187. Can you imagine being friends with someone like that? <laughs> you would never get anything done. And yet, that's the model that Jesus gives us. It's like, no, I just keep asking, keep, keep learning from one another. Who do you say I am? What are you looking for? Keep asking questions, because questions open us up, and answers tend to shut us up. Questions keep the story moving when answers just tend to put that water right on the fire. Only answers three of them. That's what God looks like. Because he's interested in the people's story. It's not just, here's the direct answer. It's here, show your work. Here, I'm going to show you where to go through your own life, through your own journey. For everyone in this room, Jesus cares about the life that you are leading because it is a part of a much larger story. <coughs> and you are a dancer within the dance, and you're a color on the canvas, and you're a word in the story. You have a beautiful, beautiful role to play. And the beautiful part is we all see things differently. And we need that. We so desperately need diversity of opinion in our lives and in our overarching story. Finally, we've come to this little dude. Do we have the picture? Boom. <laughs> there he is. So this little guy is known as the NPR raccoon. I don't know if you saw this this week, um, but it just so happened that he was in an office building across the street. He's on a skyscraper here, uh, the UBC skyscraper in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, that's him scaling the, the UBS building. Uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota. Now, I would also like to point out that that baseball video also happened in St. Paul, Minnesota. So I don't know what's going on there, but a lot of beautiful things are happening. So 
this little dude uh, started at the bottom, now he's here. No, he, uh, he was at a, uh, an office building across the street. Someone tried to catch him because he was going for nests and stuff. And so uh, the uh, animal control came and tried to catch him. And he quickly scurried off to this giant skyscraper, one of the tallest buildings in all of St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, and he hid from them, and he got away. And here's the thing. He began to scale the wall because he couldn't go down, but he could only go up. So what he did was he kept going up, and they couldn't bust any of these windows for fear that he might leap or jump or they'd lose him. So people within the office building started taking pictures and updating on the raccoon status, and then all of the sudden the internet explodes because everybody is cheering for little NPR raccoon. They put enough cat food at the top that he would smell it and be lured up, but he hadn't eaten in three days. And this arduous journey was crazy. He starts at the bottom, he makes it about halfway through, and he has to stop and he has to pause, which is what that previous picture is for, and he sleeps for about a half a day, and then when night hits, because he's nocturnal, he starts climbing again, and he keeps going up, and he keeps going up, and he keeps going up. And just to give you an example of how the internet exploded, we have the following tweets uh, that I pulled. Um, this is James Gunn, he uh, directed uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, which there is a raccoon in that film. Uh, he said, I'll donate a thousand bucks to the non-political charity of your choice to anyone who saves this raccoon. I cannot handle this, poor dude. Uh, next, we have the mayor, mayor of the city of St. Paul. Even wild animals know that the city of St. Paul is a great place to reach higher heights, right? <laughs> Good move. We're working with staff and building foreign weight to help hashtag NPR raccoon without further endangering the staff or by scaring it or making it feel threatened. And then uh, we have the actual raccoon himself who says, I made a big mistake. And then we have an artist who decides to paint this and said, hang in there, I'm rooting for you. This guy was trending on Twitter, and people from all over the world were tweeting in help, support, messages. This was something that we were all rallying around. Thank you for St. Paul, Minnesota. We all need to live there. This is, this is an incredible story of a little raccoon that could, right? And finally, after a gut-wrenching couple days of watching this on Twitter, because no one knew if he was really going to make it to the top, and he had, he'd been like sickly, and he hadn't eaten, and there was rain, there was all this stuff, and then you know, there's that picture of him just like gripping for dear life. He finally makes it to the top, and the internet explodes in joyous laughter, which is a really rare thing for 2018. <laughs> Everyone goes, hooray, huzzah. There's now merchandise being made. Um, there's fantastic fan art. You can look all this up, hashtag NPR raccoon. Here's the beauty in this. You saw we had a film director, we had an artist, we had a governor. Uh, we had all of these different people, and they all viewed this story in a very particular way. For the mayor, he put a political spin on it because that's who he is. For the artist, they made a painting because that's who they are. For the director, he offered money because that's who they are, <laughs> right? For me, a pastor, he goes halfway up, he takes a nap, and then he keeps going. There's an excellent Sabbath sermon in there somewhere. This, we all see a story in different, beautiful ways. And know which way to see that was wrong. It was just that we were seeing it from our perspective. What gifts can I bring to this table? What can I do? Who am I in this story? How am I seeing this? progress. We have to start looking at the beauty in things and the beauty in others, even the ones we totally disagree with. Because at the end of the day, the more we get in proximity with these people, with these friends, with these enemies, the more they're going to become real to us. This amazing thing happens when we actually sit down with someone we don't agree with 
all of a sudden, we're not viewing them as an issue or as a problem or as a set of ideas, but we have to reckon with the fact that, oh, this person has a heart and is a human being just like I am. And the Jesus tradition is all about trying to build bridges between those things and people and to see people for who they are and what they are truly worth, which is heaven. Heaven. Let's pray together. God, I'm, I'm just so grateful for the time that you give us. I'm so grateful for hashtag NPR raccoon. I'm so thankful uh, that we can see stories in beautiful ways and that we can see them differently and we can bring who we are to enrich that story. I just pray that over this community, uh, and I pray that we could grow in relationship with each other, and, uh, and what a rare space to be able to come here um, and agree on you and just agree that we don't have to agree on much else. <laughs> that you are our focus.